0: I know what a hammer does like I I understand what a saw does and I know I know how it works even like what do these drugs do
1: well I mean from a neurochemical standpoint we we have some general ideas you know a lot of the classical psychedelics work on the serotonin systems but when you think about the psychological effects I, I guess the best thing I can the way I can describe these things is through metaphor you have a window into this different perspective. Now that I know what this feels like, I can live my life like this.
0: To humanize me, Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm just going to cut right to the chase, as they say in the films. And actually, I'm going to talk about films because I got a recommendation for you. People have been liking the recommendations, so I've got one. And it's not a contemporary movie, by the way. It came out uh, 11 years ago in 2007. It's a little movie called The Visitor. And it was filmed, it was, it was written and directed by Tom McCarthy, who also made another little movie I like called The Station Agent. But The Visitor is the one I want you to see. It's, it's, it's strangely timely because it concerns an immigrant couple and a, a couple of illegal immigrants in New York City. And yet it's not a political movie. It's not really a movie about immigration. It's a movie about human connection. And it stars Richard Jenkins, one of my favorite character actors, who as soon as you see his face, you will know that you've seen him in a lot of things. Um, But this is the one time that he was the star of the movie. And he just is such a, a, a vital presence in the movie because what, what what the movie is really about is that thing that I'm always talking about that like evolution life uh, natural natural selection you know that that it has hardwired us to crave connection to thrive on connection to be hungry for connection and in this movie richard jenkin plays a guy who is starving for connection and it and it shows that what what happens when it appears in front of him. An opportunity here appears in front of him in the most unlikely way. And and don't get me wrong, it's not a heart warmer. It's not a Hallmark card thing. It doesn't end happy on one level. Um, But there's a beauty and a majesty to just this very human experience that I I think is really worthwhile. So I I, want to recommend it to you. And if you watch it, please let me know. Let me know what you think of it. How it touches you, what 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 you, what it connects with, um, because I like to know. And I like you, and you know what, that that that's the movie part of the show. This is the thank you part of the show. And honestly, John Wright, my producer, if you're listening to this, you should have put a drum roll right here because I've got an announcement to make. Here it is. We did it we reached a hundred supporters of this show on patreon we have a hundred people who are financially behind this show and if you are one of those people you should rush to patreon because i think we we just posted uh, a special update personal update for the patreon people edition of the show that's that's there for you but that's not the point the point is we got a hundred people behind us. And, you know, one of the people that put us over the top, a new $20 a month supporter, is my friend Ian Dodd from Los Angeles, who I got to know when I lived out there. He and his wife, Margot are amazing humanist community builders in their own right. They're they a big part of the Sunday Assembly Los Angeles world, and they, they've done lots of cool stuff. Margot is this amazing art teacher um ian 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 works on films as a camera operator but but more than that these are just like very wonderful people you know it's it's funny like the quality and the caliber of the people that support this show is so amazing enough it's time for me to cut to my conversation today with Ashley Booth um and and and, and I talked to Ashley Booth because she knows about psychedelics she knows about him firsthand and she knows about him because she's been hanging with a lot of the people that are running around them she's a graduate student participating in clinical trials um, to explore the ways psychedelic drugs help people overcome post-traumatic stress disorder but the truth of the matter is like like a lot of you guys i you know i grew up terrified of these drugs convinced that they would fry my brain and i've never used them but in recent years as I get, yeah, I, as, as I try to turn young people on to pursuing love and pursuing relationships and pursuing y- connection in an intentional way, they all come back to me and go like, well, you know, we found these drugs that are really helpful in the process. And they go like, no, no, don't use the drugs. But like the more I'm thinking, the more I'm learning, the more I'm going like, I'm the idiot. And like a lot of people, I just read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And yes, it changed my mind. But reading a book like that isn't the same as talking to somebody who's been there and back. And frankly, I needed a, I needed one of my college students to connect me to Ashley, um, who's 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 one of the principals of the Aware Project, and spends a lot of her time trying to help people navigate this terrain, which is so unfamiliar to so many of us. So, I thought she'd be a good person to talk to, and she was a good person for me to talk to. And I hope you dig this conversation. Um, Let me know what you think. I'll catch you on the other side. I've got something for you on the other side. So, uh, see you soon. This is me and Ashley Booth chopping it up. Where are you, Ashley?
1: I'm in Los Angeles.
0: In, but like where in Los Angeles?
1: I'm in Topanga.
0: Near near Topanga Canyon Road?
1: Yes. <laughs> it's beautiful here. It's, uh doesn't feel like a Los Angeles.
0: Yeah, no, that's a beautiful area. Now, my friend Rob is the one who put me on to you. Mm-hmm. Do you know Rob like in a real way? Like, Not, like
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> What's
0: interesting is... You know, for three years I was in LA um, as the humanist chaplain at USC. Very cool. So I was work. I was working with this lovely group of students called the Secular Student Fellowship, and Rob was part of that fellowship when he was an undergrad. Wow. And and he. Became I actually one gave of,
1: a talk to their group at USC about did a you year ago. Really? Uh huh. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, that was yeah. right after I left. Yeah, that group. What characterized it was it was it was not. And you you probably sense this, it's not like an angry atheist club. No. It's yeah. a bunch of people that are sort of like, if this life is the only one that we have, we want to try to make the most of it. What's interesting is when people embrace a kind of an intentionality about pursuing goodness and love, they often, you know, sort of find themselves... You know especially if they're sciencey science you know minded people, mm-hmm. they end up going like, "You know, there's these drugs that people <laughs> use. And they sort of fairly reliably deliver some of these benefits.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you know, I was not prepared for this. I mean, I was a refugee from evangelical Christianity. Mm. And so you know I kind of had this like built in fear of all substances. And so what I, I, I I would get these students all turned on to like purposeful love. And then they would come back and say, Hey, so we're using psychedelics. What, you know, and, and I'd be like, what, what? And and Rob was one of those where I was like, what? Like, you know, he was like exploring ayahuasca and, you know, and they weren't doing it in this hyper recreational way. Mm -hmm. It was very, I get, you would almost call it sacramental. Like they were Mm -hmm. like, this is a pathway to achieve some sort of secular spiritual goals I have and uh, and so like i it's it's been a real journey for me because I have all these young people in my life that are and and they're all sort of looking at me and saying, "But you were the one that taught us that these were the things we should be pursuing, so why don't you want us to pursue them <laughs> And so that's, that's, that was kind of the beginning of my, Rob was the first person who really challenged me. He's like, dude, you need to be thinking about this. And, mm, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I guess, you know, you have been in this, in this community and a part of this sort of pursuit for, for a long time, haven't you?
1: For the, the community in general. Yeah. I'm, I've been doing advocacy and education work for f- about four years now. Um, but there have been many of the old guard that have been pursuing in this work for much, much longer.
0: What was your introduction? Like Like, like, what got you started yourself in being interested in this stuff?
1: Well, I, I, I wanted to just say too that I'm, I appreciate being in this space with you because uh, I really resonated with humanism um, as I got to be kind of a young adult. Um, because the the values really, yeah, resonated with me. (laughs) And so, and with a background in science, and I think just sort of a really innate sense of curiosity that has been with me since I was a child, I have found myself in all sorts of interesting adventures. And when I this may be a little bit cliche, but uh, when I got out of college, I went to Burning Man for the first time. And that space was so profoundly changing for me, not just because that was my, my, my first introduction to mind altering or conscious expanding substances other than cannabis. And but just having a connection to community and people and generosity in a way that I'd never experienced before. So I I, I did MDMA um, or ecstasy there for the first time. And, you know, years and years ago, I remember reading an article in, I believe either Newsweek or Times, because that was the only journals or um, magazines my parents got. And I remember reading an article about MDMA in there. And they were talking about how the risks were very over-exaggerated. And so it, that was just enough of a like, well, this seems like this is not going to be too harmful. So I'm curious enough to, to see what this is about. And ended up having this experience that really opened my heart to people. And in a way that Stuck with me, you know. Kids continues to stick with me until now, and I think from that experience, you know, and I, the people I was around, it wasn't like you know my my perception of people that took drugs um, were like people that were in like seedy areas that didn't were, didn't have jobs or they were like escaping from their lives, and um, and you know, I was surrounded by all these like vibrant, creative friendly, fun people, you know, and it just completely changed my view of what of what people that did these types of things are like. And then
0: were you when you went to Burning Man, did uh-huh. you go with buddies? Like were you there with Yeah a group? And, Well and, 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 they were
1: new friends, but they 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 adopted me in a way that felt very welcoming. And taking on a new person to come to Burning Man is no small feat because you kind of have to like babysit them a little bit. And so for these people to take me on in that way um, was a a real gift and has changed the whole course of my life in the best possible way.
0: Yeah. So so, so you went there and... Did you know as you were driving up to Burning Man, like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to do this? Or was it, was it like a complete,
1: I I knew that there was a lot of usage at Burning Man. And so I was, you know, had kind of toyed with the idea coming, um, on my way there. And so I was open to it and I, but I wasn't like, I'm going to go there and do this, but it was just kind of going there and, and feeling it out.
0: And so that was your, that was your first experience.
1: Mm -hmm. And And, yeah, the, the way that it affected me, uh, it was kind of interesting because it was like, you know, growing up in the dare say no to drugs era, uh, you know, it was like I had such a profound experience with this substance and then it made me question if, if, if the the drug you know the drug drug propaganda was so wrong in, in my own in experience of this then what else could they be wrong about <laughs> and so you know it, it's i am very much now a proponent of instead of just say no in terms of no it's just say no K N O a W <laughs> because if you 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 use this uh Prohibitory and and uh, language that doesn't allow people to get any good information. Then you know they, they try things and then they're like, oh, actually, this is different than I expected, but they don't still don't really have any new information, like good information. So yeah, well, I mean that was the that- wonder. <laughs> of,
0: that was the wonder of that pollen book for me, and and I listened to this other. I listened to this uh, Canadian broadcasting company did a a podcast sort of documentary about psychedelics and just the amount of misinformation like like Mm -hmm. it seems like in the 60s this really promising stuff was happening where these drugs sort of became widely available and and people and 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 Researchers were finding that they were really helpful to people in overcoming trauma and in working through addictions. And, like, they didn't know yet what the limits were, but they were really excited about mm-hmm. it. And then, like, people started using them recreationally and they were having impacts on people that felt very countercultural. And, like, Nixon and the rest, of, like, they just shut them down. And, like, yep. this is horrible. You will die. Nobody can use this stuff. And it like went like the impression I get is that there was like a collective. I, I don't know if you would call it a conspiracy, but like that there was like a a, a very concerted effort to deny the fact that these drugs were not that addi- were not addictive at all, and were and, and and had some very beneficial side effects, or or not even side effects, maybe main effects. Yeah, <laughs>
1: right. uh, Yeah. It. it I mean, there, there was a really interesting article that, that came out a couple years ago, uh, an interview with one of Nixon's close associates. And they f- f- he flat out says that they intentionally started the drug war so that they could use heroin to disrupt the African American movement, and they used marijuana to disrupt and, the hippie movement and to be able to go in and arrest all of their leaders because of the substances. So I, I don't think that the idea of a, a conspiracy is too far off.
0: No, and at the very least, I mean, it's, it's interesting because there were these researchers that kept working sort of beneath the radar or off the grid. And, and it sounds like some of the people that you've become connected to in the last four years are people, some of them are guides and people that were working in the shadows, but that, that we're still sort of trying to figure out, like, what are the best ways to administer these drugs and to create situations in which people can really grow mm-hmm. as a result of using them.
1: Mm-hmm. It, at the heart of it, it, it it is still, you know, I think there. While these experiences can create these mystical or spiritual experiences, what we're still kind of working with right now is fundamentally science and the scientific method we're We're testing things and seeing what the result is and then testing it again and seeing if they get the same result. And if you know we're in the interest of of supporting humans in, letting go of what's holding them back and helping them live a, a, a purposeful and happy life, then, you know, this is a, a fine pursuit if this is a tool that can be used safely.
0: Okay. So let, let, I'm going to back you up and go like, okay, mm-hmm. so this is a tool that can be used safely. So I want to know, like, I know what a hammer does. <laughs> like I, I understand what a saw does and I know, I know how it works even. Like what do these drugs do?
1: Well, I mean, from a neurochemical standpoint we we have some general ideas. Um, you know, a lot of the classical psychedelics work on the serotonin systems. But when you think about the psychological effects, I, I guess the best thing I can, the way I can describe these things is through metaphor. and what it what it seems like in my own experiences with these things is that you're creating, you know, you're, you're going into a, a different mind state where you're thinking differently, you're feeling differently, you're feeling your body differently and you have a window into this different perspective. And so for me, it was being able to like, wait, I can, I can be more open. I can be more friendly. I can be more generous all the time. Like now that I know what this feels like, I can live my life like this. And then for people that have experienced either trauma or going through some challenges, what it seems to be doing is like lifting off the lid that we keep on our feelings. And, and, you know, most people have... Uh, poor coping skills or poor emotional processing skills. And so instead of working through whatever those things are or resolving uh, pain or trauma, it's like, okay, like I can't, I can't, I don't have a safe container to be able to process this. I need to either self-medicate or forget about this or whatever. And so what these things do what seem, they seem like they do is they take that lid off so that you can explore a lot of these feelings in a way that uh, is from a, a different perspective. And so MDMA isn't really necessarily considered a, a classical psychedelic, but it um, some people call it an empathogen. So it's making you more empathic. Um, But one of the reasons why it's so excellent for treating PTSD and the trials that are going on right now is that you have serotonin released in your brain, oxytocin, and it lowers the activity in the amygdala, which is the area of the brain that controls your fear center. So if someone has PTSD, normally if they think about something that's challenging, then, uh, you know, a past trauma, then their fear centers get all reactivated again. And it they very quickly get out of this sort of window of tolerance that they can manage their stress. And so to be able to be in a space where your fear center is in, in lowered, and you have this oxytocin and serotonin where you're, you're able to connect and bond with people easier and create a therapeutic alliance with caring therapists, it can create an incredibly healing space. So that was, <laughs> I guess, a couple of different different ways to answer that question. Um,
0: well, I guess one of the questions I have is like, okay, so like I get flooded with serotonin and dopamine. So like I feel great, right? mm mm-hmm. And uh,
1: not typically dopamine, but.
0: <laughs> and I'm not as afraid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So then I bond with my therapist because what? My therapist is in the room with me when I'm doing this?
1: Uh, if you're doing the, the th- you know, the, how they're doing in the clinical of trials of, of having two therapists uh, support someone as they go through their experience.
0: Okay. And so then what I guess what I'm wondering is like, then the drug wears off. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is, is that like, it showed me a level of connection and I can like, I can remember that or somehow like that's durable. Yeah after the experience is over.
1: Yeah, it's you know the the place that I was kind of pre <laughs> pre-psychedelics is very much maybe the sort of the space that you're coming from in that it's like we want to understand these things from a cognitive way and it's like okay, how do you how did that happen? But the way that these things impact you is through much more of an emotional space. And if you think about I I used to be in marine science and environmental science in general. And when I talk to people about climate change, you know, I notice that you can tell people facts till you're blue in the face, but unless you relate it to something that they care about in an emotional way, they don't really, it doesn't really sink in, you know? And so I, I feel like the changes that psychedelics support is through that emotional connection. Like, if you really feel passionately about something, then that's what drives change that's, I think, lasting in a way that, you know, doesn't come from a wholly rational or or cognitive space. Does that make sense?
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it does. It does. But like you're an ad, I mean, like, for, well, I have I have like 87 questions coming to my mind <laughs> off that. But I guess, like, I, th- I think that you're, your identity on some level, it, or it, like your sort of public identity is you're, you're an advocate and an educator mm-hmm. about these drugs. And so when you're explaining to somebody why this is a good idea for them, it sounds like if I'm hearing you right, you're saying like, look, this is, it's not so much going to change the way you think as it, it might change the way you feel.
1: Uh, Well, I think it does both. And then I also want to kind of clarify that I'm not, I'm an advocate for science and curiosity and exploring what these things can do. I'm not an advocate for everyone taking any of these substances. And I don't recommend that that everyone take these substances um, because there's a lot of a lot of situations where that may not be wise, uh, for people's mental health, um, because of past familial mental health and a lot of other issues. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that a little bit.
0: So, I mean, clearly there are people like that are, that these are, that are vulnerable in ways that these drugs make them maybe not worth that, the risk.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think given our level of understanding of these things at this time, people that have, um, either a family history of schizophrenia or bipolar, or if they've been diagnosed with bipolar, um, these things can trigger those, those existing conditions.
0: No, no, you know, and I'm a person who's, you know, like I've never been drunk in my life, mm-hmm. not be- like just because I was a control freak, mm. you know, like the idea of being out of control freaked me out. Um, you know, and didn't use, never even tried marijuana until I was like fifty years old. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that when you that has been most interesting to me about the stuff I've read is this notion of the ego dissolution, like the temporary experience of not being able to differentiate between yourself and The world around you, Mm -hmm. which which of course is, is physically, um, true (laughs) that you, you are made up of the same atoms as everything around you and you will be reabsorbed into it. Like that we're all part of a larger reality. Like that's the truth, but like, we don't feel that way. Like I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm Bart and you're Ashley and we're not the same thing. My sense from especially from reading Michael Pollan's book was that many times people have this experience where it's almost like they don't exist anymore or, or like they are continuous with the rest of things and then they get reintegrated later at the end. But that that experience is sort of a window on a different way of seeing everything. Did you, have you experienced that sort of ego dissolution thing? Do you know what he's talking about?
1: Yes, I've I experienced it many times.
0: <laughs> and, and, and what did you learn from having your ego? What, what did you learn from that experience? Or what, what? What's the noetic quality of that spiritual experience? You know, what did you? What did you bring back?
1: Well, it's going to sound really cliche and cheesy,
0: as does a lot of this psychedelic language.
1: Yeah, uh, but. That the fundamental frequency of the universe is love. And when I was able to feel that with my entire being, I was able to trust and let go of that control that we uh, have this illusion of, of that we have control over anything. And to be able to rest in that, what feels like a truth to me. (laughs) And it's not something I can necessarily prove, but I know that many other people that have had similar experiences, whether they have it through some sort of spontaneous experience or through a substance or through meditation, but that these things come back to a common theme. There's a commonality. And it's fundamentally shifted my perspective on how I live my life and how my life has unfolded and how it continues to unfold. And I am every day more and more grateful for those experiences that I've had and 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 that feeling that I now carry within me wherever I go.
0: You know, one of the one of the things that. I'm, I'm always interested in because so many people when they, uh, you know, I was, I was a very evangelical Christian. I, I, I ran around with a lot of evangelical Christians. And when I left the faith and and, and I, I deal with a lot of people that have left that faith, one of the most crushing parts of leaving it is, is that that faith gave them a strong sense of immortality.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: And all of a sudden they're like, oh, oh wait, I'm, I'm going to die. Like the, 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 there's a, there's a, Finitude, or there's a temporality to my life, and and for a lot of people, that's a, just a t- terrifying thought. Mm. You know, like no news, like here, like Ashley, you're going to be shocked, but a lot of people are afraid of death. Um, <laughs> but that experience that you just described, it would seem to me that that might diminish your sense of fear in the face of your own permanent ego dissolution. Cause you're like, I've been there and it wasn't so bad.
1: That, that is how, how it felt. I, I, I feel like I don't have that sense of, uh, fear of death. I mean, sure. If it was a painful death, I would, I would be fearful of, of the pain or discomfort, but,
0: um, no, fear, I, I still fear di- dying. You feel you might fear dying, but, <laughs> yeah. but maybe not fear yeah. of actually being dead
1: and i don't know if it's necessary that i have felt like oh well my consciousness that has all of these memories and stuff will, will continue on in some way but but i think if anything it's made me more like hyper present in my life and um one of the, one of the phrases that I use, I fully intend to enjoy the fuck out of my life. And the beauty and the gift of being able to be in these bodies and on this beautiful Eden of a planet flying through space on this, like try and even fathom, like we were these minerals with water put together and, and we're having this experience. It's I think it's more than our consciousness, you know, our conscious mind can really take.
0: But, like, do you really need drugs to to come to that level of wonder? I mean, wouldn't a good microscope and and, and, and telescope do the same?
1: I think if people bothered to look in microscopes or telescopes on a regular basis, but most people don't even see the stars in the sky anymore. So, I mean, I've always been in wonderment of, of nature, but the level of gratitude that I have now um and peacefulness I think has has shifted and there seems to be um much more flow in my life however you want to kind of <laughs> it just uh things seem to be unfolding in a way that um are more and more magical <laughs> and I don't really know how to put it other than that but just um,
0: and you attribute that to the perspective that you gained through the use of psychedelics.
1: I think, yeah, I mean, I. it seems like the more that I rest in that space of love and trust, the more things open up. And so, you know, I don't know if that uh, requires having a mystical experience or if you, you know, just shifting your perspective to one that's more optimistic, I'm sure there's a difference, you know, that, that, that there would, you would kind of point you in a similar sort of direction. Um, but
0: when I dare say it worked, I mean, I dare say like, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm married, I've been married for gosh, coming up on 30 some years. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so my wife and I are so different.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And for me reflecting on the scale of the universe or the finitude of my life. Like that's enough to drive me to an incredible level of gratitude and, and Mm. excitement and enthusiasm for life. And sometimes go like, Mark, do you see? And she just goes like, nah, nah, nah. I like, and like, like it takes something different to reach her emotionally, Mm -hmm. to, to, to reach that part of her that really resonates. And it's not that it can't be reached, but it's reached by another means. And so, you know I dare say that that you know, I don't know that these drugs are the the best way or the only way for everyone, but it clearly seems to me that they're the best way for somebody like i, I mean i'm 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 talking to people who are having you know, who would say this has been one of the five biggest things that ever happened to me like this is this has for changed sure. me more than. Anything more than parenthood changed me mm-hmm. more than, you know, you know, and so, but it's very difficult to put into words. Um, but, well, but how you said, do you,
1: how do you describe the ineffable
0: <laughs> yeah, <literally. laughs>
1: uh, poets and artists and uh, have been trying to do it for thousands of years.
0: But one of the things that you sent to me that was interesting when we were setting up this talk is you said, oh, so you're a humanist chaplain. That's really cool. I used to be a humanist. Mm hmm until I use these drugs. And it, and it feels like one word that you would use is, is like somehow you these drugs have, have, have grounded you in a kind of faith.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've pondered a lot over the, the words faith and trust. I, I wouldn't consider myself a, a, like a faith-based person through that definition. I don't know if that's everyone's definition, but that's mine.
0: I I guess, you know, I mean, when when you're talking to a a post evangelical like myself, like, you know, the bottom line is sort of like, there are people that think that there's somebody out there pulling strings and making stuff happen. And like that, the world was created with a a larger sense of purpose. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and then there are people like me who are sort of religious naturalists in the sense of we're naturalists and that we think that this is all there is. It's matter and energy. And, and we, we just think it's like amazing and worthy of our devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, it sounds like you went from being a naturalist to being somebody who thinks that there is something, somebody or some, 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 some larger purpose to the universe.
1: I think that there are a lot of levels <laughs> that we have no idea what is going on. We were you know we we have some some grasp of this this slow moving light matter world that we're that we're living in i have done ayahuasca many times i mean it's fascinating and it's very humbling because you're like whoa i thought i knew what this reality is and i just saw something that is so far out of anything that i could possibly even imagine what was that?
0: But that's not where the that's not where the profundity of of your experiences has been in yes. those past ones.
1: So I have, I have had other experiences where I've been in that place where I've completely let go of my sense of self, reality, and been uh, dissolved into oneness. And that was those were the experiences that were the most profound of experiences of anything I've ever done in my life.
0: And when you were in the oneness, like could you see anything or, or like seeing implies perspective, yeah. a, a point of view and you didn't have one anymore. Like was there, was it visual or was it just.
1: It's it, I would say it's visual, but not didn't have visions. So it's not like I was seeing content in terms of like discrete beings but I was in—I would say what many people describe—a near-death experience where they go into this tunnel of light, and it was this kaleidoscopic, iridescent light that it was like almost like a mandala. But I probably couldn't draw it if <laughs> if you asked me to. But just unfolding and opening, and um, so there was a visual component to it in that sense. But the that wasn't really the most important part. It was the profound emotional component that went along with it. Which was and, and, and I, more love than I had ever experienced in my life.
0: More love that you were that you were feeling directed towards you, or more love that you were feeling towards everything around you? Or
1: that well, I, I felt just deep love and compassion for, um, what it's, how hard it is to be human, I guess. Um, and, and just, um, yeah, in a way that just, that opened up my heart. And, um, you know, after that first experience I spent, and I I do yoga, pretty regularly. And for about a year, year and a half after that experience, about half the time I would go into the savasana at the end. And because I was so open by that point in the class, that I could dip a little bit back into the emotions of that experience. And I would just start to cry. And not because I was sad, it was just emotions that felt so good to release.
0: And I, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience before, where you're sort of like people are like, "I get it," and you're <laughs> like, "Yeah, you sort of get it. You probably don't get it."
1: Well, like, language—you um, is- kind of
0: you had to be there.
1: <laughs> I mean, language is so interesting in that we can describe an experience so many, so many different ways. We can write poetry, we can paint, um, and no matter how deeply I describe, even if in experience of you know going to Yosemite, you're not going to be able to know what that's like unless you go there yourself. And, you know, I there's like that, I don't know if it's a, call it a proverb or, or just like a, <laughs> but the talking about the kind of the guru or talking to the disciple and saying, you know, how how does the frog describe to the tadpole what air is like? It's like, you can't. <laughs> and one of the things that's so interesting about religion and, and the spirit, um, and, and what psychedelics can provide is that, you know, most, most people have their religion where some person back in history had some kind of profound opening awakening experience and brought back some truths from that. And, but people weren't directly having those experiences And so they just took their word for it. And then that word got manipulated by power and greed and all sorts of things. But what these substances provide is cutting out the middleman. Like you can have a direct experience of what it feels like to connect with God, spirit, source, the consciousness of the universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, And have that experience for yourself. Um, So I see.
0: Okay. Now, the weird thing is like, and and like, like I'm not as, I'm not as skeptical of this as you might think I am. Like, because I've had my own set of transcendent experiences. Now, now, like I would explain them very differently now than when I Mm -hmm. had them. Like back then I was talking to Jesus and now I would say like, yeah, this is, there was, there was a voice there, but it was something I was generating, you know, like in one part of my brain and sort of, it felt like it was outside of me, but it was probably inside mm-hmm. me, like, you know, whatever. But, what, but one of the things I go, like when you talk about, you can have this direct experience when I dream sometimes, like I have in my dream had a direct experience Of being in love with a woman who, when I wake up, like I went to high school with her and she's not in love with me and I'm not in love with her. Like, like, so like the fact that I had like a direct experience, like she was talking to me and I was hugging her and like, I go like, and none of it was, none of it was grounded in any reality.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, But I had the experience of it. And so, and so to me, like the fact, like when you say like, you can have it, you can have a direct experience, I go like, or you can have a cool thing happen in your brain that generates a reality or generates an image of a reality that doesn't act, you know, that may or may not exist.
1: Yeah, that could be entirely possible.
0: Right. You're okay with that.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think if anything, these things have made me uh, very humble in what I'm, You know, I can describe what I feel, but, um, I don't feel like I can make, um, the kind of, um,
0: reality claims,
1: reality claims, but you know, I'm, I, I used to be a very adamant atheist and, um, and that, and then as I kind of explored different psychedelics before I even had that, that bigger experience, I was like, there's a there seems to be a lot more going on here. Like, how can I just be like, this is the truth. You know, I don't know. And I still, you know, I mean, I f- there's a part of me that feels like I've connected to something that is, um, profound and feels truthful. Um, and the more that I bring that into my life, it feels like it affects, my life is affected by it. Um,
0: Oh yeah. and so I mean, I think that, I think like there are, I mean, it's interesting when you say it like that, I sort of go like, yeah. And and what is it that ushered you into that? It was like a chemical that was messing with your brain. And I sort of go like, so it sounds like amazing. And like a level of, a level of consciousness that I'm not familiar with and all stuff. I go like, but it also, it sounds profoundly natural to me. Like it sounds like It's chemicals interacting with other chemicals in a physical space, like in a particular, like, so like, it feels really natural to me, even though like, and it feels like there are layers of of nature that we have no concept of and like, you know, like layer upon layer. Um, So I'm like really profound in the humility of saying like, gosh, I don't know. I don't know much about this reality and stuff like that. It's just like, there's, there's so many layers of reality I'm aware of that I don't know that like I don't sort of feel like I need to come up with another like a, a, a supernatural reality. Like I got like probably it's it's like super dash natural. Like <laughs> natural mm-hmm. is super like wow, you know, um, that, that seems much more likely to me than like that I need to invent another category because it seems like human beings are constantly discovering That like our little puny perspectives are only giving us like, (laughs) you know, like we don't see much of the light. There's, there's ranges of light that we don't see. There's ranges of sound that we don't hear. There's, there's ranges of everything. And there are cats in boxes that if we look at them, they're, they're there. And, you know, like, like there's so, you know, or, or like these quarks that like, if you look at them, they move, (laughs) like your observation changes. And it's just like, that's, that's just nature. And it freaks me out. And, And what you're talking about sounds really natural just just because the access points are
1: all natural. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether (laughs) something in our brain is doing something and whether it's like an illusion in our head or somehow certain plants hold these particular chemicals that allow us to feel like they're communicating with us, like that's pretty weird. And I think worthy of a lot of curiosity and further research. (laughs) Right, right. So, Yeah, no, and I'm with you there. And like,
0: I know you're not allowed to answer these questions and you don't, and this is not your business. But like, it it is really freaky when somebody like me, who's like a nice person and really wants to make the most of my life. And I, I, you know, I've, I've kind of like, I've come to the conclusion that I, it would be kind of silly for me to live out my life and not even open that window and see what's on the other side. But I don't know, like, I wouldn't want to do it without a guide. Like, you know, I, I've read all this stuff about set and setting, like mm-hmm. that where you are and the way in which you've prepared yourself and, and the idea of having somebody there who if things start to go a little sideways can kind of sort of speak to you and guide you into a way of, coping that might be more helpful to you. Like I want all of that. I want the safest, most responsible, likely to, likely to result in spiritual enlightenment trip possible. I don't even know. I can't just walk out on the street. I can't go to like Walmart and sort of, you know, get the book. Or I can't go to Craigslist and say like looking for a reliable psychedelic guide to take I don't like. Where does somebody even start?
1: Well, we need to legalize these things and change them from Schedule One to something else, so that we can actually research. But here's them. my
0: here's my question: If I said to you, "I'm not going to tell you where it can get a used car," but like <laughs> I can tell you this: like you definitely want to check the mileage. And you want to look at the treads of the tires, like a, a, a person who knows about used cars. Like, look, I'm not going to tell you if this is a car you should buy. I'm not even going to tell you where. I'm just saying, like, when you go on to any lot and find look at mm-hmm. any car, look for these things. What are the signs of a good
1: guide? Well,
0: like, like how do you know if somebody's a good
1: guide? Funny you ask, because uh, we literally just posted um, a guide <laughs> on um, not, not a person guide, but a paper guide. Um, on our AWARE Project website under safety, um, and it's called Safe Sitting and Ceremony. And we describe uh, a set of questions that if you encounter someone that is mm, posing as a guide or saying that they are some kind of guide or facilitator, what kinds of questions, one, you should be asking yourself before you sit? Uh, Two, what kind of questions you should ask them? And three, what kinds of questions they should be asking you. So I highly recommend anyone that is looking to go down this path, um, is looking for people to sit with, please look at this guide because it it has a a really good set of ways to um, know if the person that you're going to sit with is um, responsible and caring because you're putting your health and safety into their hands okay so (laughs) i can read some of the questions off if you'd like no no, no, (laughs) no like no i mean that
0: that's actually like i know the aware project is the thing like that's kind of your gig right now like that's that's on your business card it says aware project (laughs)
1: I've I've got a lot of projects, but that is one of the main ones. Yes.
0: (laughs) You do have a lot like, like, and I'll put them, I'll post them all (laughs) on the podcast info, the notes and stuff. But like, but would you say is the, is, is the aware project like your lead dog? Uh,
1: well, it's my lead thing. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm in grad school right now. I'm also working on one of the clinical trials for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of PTSD.
0: Who's doing that trial?
1: Um, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's maps.org. Nice. And they've been raising funds and organizing this for over 30 years to work towards uh, getting these things, uh, through the FDA system to be able to be as a recognized, uh, legal medicine. And we are very, very, very close. <clears throat> if all the, the trials continue to go as we expect them to, um, we'll be able to do legal, um, uh, MDMA psychotherapy for people that have PTSD in about a year and a half. Yeah. I had I had a, a question for you as you as you were talking. What what scares you the most about these things and even thinking about it?
0: Well, I would say that six months ago what scared me the most is the sense that they might alter my brain in a way that would be unfixable or you know, like like in like inalterably.
1: In, in alter how? Like you'd go crazy or something?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, and you said like, what, I, what you thought it would be like an egg on a, on a frying pan. Like, this is your mind under. And I was like, exactly. Like I thought that they might obliterate parts of my memory or parts of my reason or parts of mm-hmm. something the same way, like a brain injury does. And I've had a brain injury. So I know a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, And, and, and of course, like there's, that's not how they work. That's not what they do. Like and it's funny. I, I met mean, one of the guys that I've talked to recently told me about like his worst trip, and he said, "Here's the funny thing, Bart." He said, "The good trips I've had were so joyful. They were like what you were talking about, like the love and all that." Mm-hmm. Um, he was like, "I had this trip that was scary and negative and bad," and he said, "And two weeks later." The outgrowth of it was the same kind of positive perspective shift and the same, Mm -hmm. like, he's like, he's like, it wasn't as pleasurable an experience, but he said the impact of it on my life and on the way I treat people and on my sense of oneness with the world was identical to the, to the good trip.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So he's like, even a bad, even a bad trip is, it doesn't stay a bad trip.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, we kind of have tried to do a little bit of reframing in our community of saying like Bad doesn't mean, like, challenging doesn't mean bad. Right. So, you know, uh, we grow through challenge. We grow when we have to face the things that we don't want to look at. Um, or we're, f- we're exposing and looking at our mind in a way that we're like, ooh, that's not very flattering. That's uncomfortable. But it makes you grow. It's an impactful moment that shifts you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to be honest with you at this stage in the game, I am much more afraid of dying without having gone as far as I might have gone down the pathway of love and gratitude than I am. My fear, the fear thing has shifted for me now where I'm like, oh, don't let me have a heart attack before I find that guide.
1: Mm -hmm. You
0: know, because like I want to experience this thing. What's, What's funny is my wife, she she has a lot of the kind of anxieties that, that these drugs sometimes address
1: mm-hmm.
0: and lots of her friends are like, you should try this. Like you struggle. Like, and she's like, I know, I know. And it's like, the fear is ungrounded. Like it's like, mm-hmm. if you said, like what, like you asked yeah. the question, what are you afraid of? And like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess it's just novelty, fear of novelty. Yeah.
1: Their fear of Um, the unknown or fear of letting go of control.
0: But, you know, but, but I think that like what you talked about are all these people that sort of like have had casual experiences with psychedelics and then they, they're sort of like, well, I, you know, I think I know all there is to know. So like, I'm just gonna like hang out my shingle here. Like I do fear that, like I fear, like I fear having an inadequate guide or having somebody who Mm -hmm. doesn't properly prepare me, Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's my fear has shifted from the experience like that, that the drugs themselves are dangerous to like, I want to have the right set and I want to have the right setting and I want to mm-hmm. be with somebody like one of the things that Paul talked about was he said, like any great experience, a lot of it is in the reflection afterwards and he said, you know, some of these people that you have an experience and then they don't sit down with you the next day and say, let's talk about what happened mm-hmm. while it's fresh. And he's like, that's a really, he said, that was really powerful to me to have somebody who knows a little bit, who's been down these paths to sort of talk me through and say, what did you say? Okay, well, could it be, could it be this? Could, and he said, he learned so much in that. And so like that, it, my fear has shifted from my Brian's going to be fried to I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss out because I have a lousy uh I have a lousy, lousy pilot.
1: Well, I mean, there's with the more m- milder experiences, I would say, with like MDMA or, um, I don't know. I, I'm most prone
0: I, right now. I'm most prone right now to the LSD. Like, based on. I, what-
1: I, I am very fond of LSD, <laughs> you know, <laughs> especially when you're talking about the wonderment. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've also been doing here in our community in Los Angeles, and there are other groups that do similar work, but they provide preparation and integration work for people that have had experiences. So from a, a harm reduction perspective. So, you know, if you're planning to do something, we're not going to like tell you where to do it or like who to do it with, or even if you're doing it by yourself, or you just have like a friend that's going to trips it for you, which just means that they're going to, be sober and just be available for you as a resource if, you know, you feel like you need it. Um, But, you know, to help you set intentions about what you want to go into this space with and give you sort of some navigational tools. Um, And then afterwards we, you know, I'll create a space for people to talk about their experiences in that, that time that you were talking about is like that grounding fertile ground for, for integrating those insights. So you know, we're 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 putting together a, a trip sitting workshop for people um, because we we have a lot of people that are in the same sort of position you're in, where they they don't have access to a guide. They may have access to substances, but they don't know how to how to inter- interact with that. You know, and so teaching people how to to sit in presence with someone. And be a supportive, you know, and not a guide, because there's a, I, I believe, uh, an, an inner intelligence that's guiding you, um, but someone that could be there to just reassure you that everything's going to be okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, I guess you're right. I, 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 you're right. I don't necessarily want somebody to guide the trip. I just want somebody to guide me to the boat,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then be there to meet me at the dock when I come back.
1: Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I
0: understand that what happens out on that ocean. Is between me and myself, but, um, mm-hmm. to make sure that like, I get to the right boat and, and that when I come back, they want to talk, there's somebody that has been on, has been out there enough that they can talk to me about it intelligently. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Hey, so I, I, this has been really good for me. Um,
1: good. <laughs> and I, I
0: think, I think, I think that probably a lot of the people that listen to this podcast have never overheard a conversation. With a psychonaut, <laughs> um, let alone one who, you know, who who troubles herself to try to, you know, make make that space safer, safer and more accessible to other people. And so, I think like this is going to be just a really fun conversation over here.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I hope it's been helpful.
0: Thank you so much. All right, that was me and Ashley Booth. You can find out all about her in the show notes and and all the connections to the cool projects she's on. You can also figure out how to contact me on the show notes. And I would love to hear from you. I love hearing from the people that listen to this show. It's a a joy. It's a joy to kind of hear what different episodes mean to you and what connections you're making and what's happening in your world. So there you go, bartcampolo.org. Go there. And you know what? I never say this, but lately I've been talking to some people who say, you know, you got to remind people, go to iTunes, review the show. That's what brings more people to it. And so if you dig the show and you want more people to listen to it, you should go to iTunes and just, even if it's just a sentence, just rate the show, just go like, I like the show. And if you, there are other ways to connect people to the show, like you could just, you know, send an email to somebody and say, hey, there's this podcast I like and pick your favorite episode and just tell them to listen to it. All right, enough. I I always give you an Ingersoll quote or I I actually used to always give you an Ingersoll quote. Now I sometimes give you an Ingersoll quote, but I've got one today that I think is particularly timely. When I was a child, I was taught that the Jews were an exceedingly hard-hearted and cruel people and that they were destitute of the finer feelings, that they had little... They were destitute of the finer feelings that they had a little while before that time crucified the only perfect man who had appeared upon the earth, that this perfect man was also perfect God, and that the Jews had really stained their hands with the blood of the infinite. When I got somewhat older, I found that nearly all people had been guilty of substantially the same crime, that is, that they had destroyed the progressive and the thoughtful, That religionists had in all ages been cruel. That the chief priests of all people had incited the mob. To the end that heretics, that is to say philosophers, that is to say men who knew that the chief priests were hypocrites, might be destroyed. I also became acquainted with a large number of Jewish people. And I found them like other people. Except that as a rule, they were more industrious, more temperate, had fewer vagrants among them, no beggars, Very few criminals. And in addition to all this, I found that they were intelligent, kind to their wives and children, and that as a rule, they kept their contracts and paid their debts. He goes on. That was written in the 1890s. That was written before the Holocaust. That's a voice from the past, presaging the future, and recapitulating the deep past. You know what I like about Ingersoll in that passage most of all? He just calls them the Jews. Because that's what they call themselves. They say, I'm a Jew. And the fact of the matter is, is that those of us that know Jews need to be a lot more vocal about saying how much we like Jews. Because it turns out <laughs> that there's still a lot of people out there that don't. So there, that's Robert Ingersoll being a a pro-Semite. And that's that's what I want us to be, especially right now. Not, you know, colorblind, not culture blind. We just like we need to be pro a lot of things. And right now we all need to be pro-Semites. So uh so there. Take that with you today and uh, make it a good one. And I'll see you next time on Humanize Me.
1: For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. To leave a question in your own voice to be used in future shows, call the Humanize Me Q line at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media.
0: Hey, you could be larger than life.